0: Here we go, here we go. Let's go. Happy still Easter. Here we go. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, who through your Son has promised us your Holy Spirit. Let us anticipate the sending of your Spirit who will teach us to praise you, not only here on earth in weakness, but someday in power and glory. On the day when united with the choir of the angels, we sing through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, good to see you. Uh, let's see. Lindsay, where are we going to send money today? Soup kitchen. Soup kitchen. Actually, that's a good... gosh the soup kitchen is a good place. There's a lot of... You know, it's Donald dad. They do a lot of good. It's a tougher neighborhood. They actually had somebody who, um, I think, was murdered just outside, you know, the church, a regular guy. I mean, that's a tough That's a tough place. Anything you can do for them is a good deal. So. Toward the soup kitchen then. That'll be fun. We got a little a card from Rachel Chester. Um, just thanking you all for the support toward her going to Australia. So that's good. We got a couple of people going to Guatemala again for the eyeglass thing. I think Jan is going and Debbie Wren. You got people going in all directions good, doing good stuff. You had people at Wall Camp yesterday who spent the day. That was nice. So, I mean, people are busy even if you don't know about it. And it's, you know, be encouraging to each other because it's so nice all the things that everybody is doing that we we don't maybe always know about, but it 's good to kind of chat that through and encourage each other in that way so that's that 's a really good thing there's a voters meeting in a couple of weeks or more like a month or so. Kind of pay attention to that. you know that the way the constitution is written, the nominating committee uh, comes up with a slate of people. If you see somebody that you think would be good for one of the spots um, then let us know but think specifically i mean if you it 's not Probably not enough just to say, this is a good person, I would love to see him. They kind of think specifically, this person should slot into this place because they have the particular skills that would be at work, you know, for the church here. That's the way that the nominating committee tries to think about it, and uh, we'd love to hear from you if you have a great idea. But the other thing I would do is, before you, you know, say, put up Elizabeth Craig's name for something, you should ask her. Um, (laughs) Laughter you should ask her, like, in addition to having all those grandchildren in your house, could you also? I mean, that's the kind of, kind of question. And that would be the Christian way to phrase it to her. So uh, kind of think that through, okay? Uh, okay, anything else going on? And do plan to attend to the voters' meetings. They're, you know, they're fairly quick and kind of fun and informative. So, I mean, they're, as voters' meetings go, they're heaven on earth. So, uh, you know, come along and, and do that. Anything else we should be doing? Questions about anything? May is busier than Christmas or Easter for whatever reason, between graduations, confirmations, your travel. May is, we're going to lose you in May. I mean, we know that's going to happen, but try to stay attentive and see what's happening. Okay, it was good to have Arthur here last weekend. It's always nice when those guys kind of show up. And uh, beyond the camaraderie, it's good to hear it from somebody else in a different way, same thing. It's good. A couple things we should clean up. Um, So we'll do kind of eight and nine from the previous... One, and then we'll kind of go to the next one. So, spin your Bible open to Hebrews twelve. There is the sense, the, the burgeoning sense. If you watch television, if you read the newspaper, if you just talk to people, there is this burgeoning sense that the world has come undone. And uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of across across the world. It, you can pick, you know, you can pick economics, you can pick politics, you can pick religion, you can pick pop culture, you can pick what you want. There is this sense that the world is coming apart. And, you know, even the suggestions, if you sort of read, you know, there, there's even the suggestions from different sides, not just from one side, but the great American experiment is now over. And it'll, it'll just take a little while to decline, and then, you know, it'll be the next thing. It's a very strange way for us to think, anybody my age and older, because, you know, it was always like, you know, here we go. Well, you know, there's been the lost sense of here we go, and, and that's extended in many places. It's not just politics. Um, it's also the church, the notion that we likely will become a minority culture and what that means to us. Um, you see it in, in how people talk you know, about themselves, that self-interest now or self-love is the thing that moves to the top of the list when you talk to people. Uh, even if you read, you know, I mean, I love Silicon Valley. I love reading about it. I love the interest and the excitement. But I also, you know, find it interesting... You know, for example, yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, when emails get exposed that show people's extraordinary self-interest when they've been telling you for a while that it's all about you, right? So it's a very interesting thing. Now, you take that, all of that together, and now you read Hebrews against the background of that. And the tone of this has basically been, this is who you are, and this is what's been done to you, and this is what the Lord hopes for you. And we're just to the point where because of who you are, you will suffer. And then what's interesting is is the next two bits we're going to do is he'll say, come on, really, is it that bad? You've got to get tough. What do you think that the world was like? Like when you were baptized or when you said you were a Christian or when you came to the Eucharist, did you think it was a free pass? In many ways. Anybody, anybody older than me has had a free pass. I mean, if you're alive and you've been, you've been alive in America the last, you know, since the 40s, in some ways you kind of had a free pass. Everybody came back from the war, had a lot of kids, churches grew, it was dominant, there wasn't that much competition, everybody did it, here we go. That world is over. It's possible for that world to come back again, but that is not the world. And of course, every denomination then is in decline, and churches are empty, and Europe preceded us in this, you know, a Second World War did them in. And, you know, nobody could quite figure out how to fit together, you know, uh, mustard gas and the altar, you know, it just didn't work so well. So there's a lot of work to be done. And in some sense, there's going to be this great sifting. Uh, You know, if the world comes apart at the seams, Jesus already told us that was going to happen, right? You know what to do. Uh, You lift up and embrace it when it comes, right? Um, You know, Jesus, how we talk about Jesus' return. How do we talk about this? We talk about lift up your heads, right? And embrace it because you know it's coming. So the point is, This is the thing that kind of sorts us out as Christians. Now, we spent a lot of time over the past couple years talking about what it means to live like that. So, almost the entire year last year, you know, we talked about not being angry about it. You know, this great disappointment that what you, and it it teaches you, of course, what you love, right? You get angry about the things that you love that are taken from you or that die. And, you know, to understand that anger and not to let it control you or not let it be your default. I was even thinking this morning about how, um, you know, everything that I wake up with. You know, I have particular, uh, er, you know, things come things come rushing at me as soon as I as soon as I uh, as soon as as soon as I wake up. You know, I've you know I remember people for good and for ill. I remember things. I remember the own, my own frustrations in my life. I try to remember all the good things that are happening with you. I bundle all that together, and those things come sort of uninvited. And we've talked about this two years ago, where we talked about what meditation and prayer do for you when these things happen. Well, what's interesting is now, is that all that is kind of bundled up at the end of Hebrews. In some way, you know, sort of luck of the draw, this book ended up describing exactly where we are. Exactly where we are. And, you know, we're in Wheaton, Illinois, for sakes. I mean, uh, you know, one of my earliest images of a Wheaton, Illinois, right after I came here, was the Fourth of July parade. Bob... Running for president on the Fourth of July is marching down Main Street in Wheaton. You're like, where am I? Right? You know, well, this. I mean, you know, I just made me wonder about all of you. So, uh, you know, that's all. So, I mean, it just is. It's just weird, right? I mean, we're we're probably more shielded this from than anybody, and yet, all your troubles are real, and all your suspicions, you know, they might not all be true, but many of them are. And if you just sort of extend a little bit about, um, you know, if you just kind of pay attention to what's happening in the world, and especially who's educating your kids. P.S., it's not you. Um, you know, if you just sort of, if you read the things that they read and watch the things that they watch, it doesn't look anything like you. And now you've got to figure out what to do about that, right? And so now we're all the way back around to the thing that we do every year, which is how does the church proceed And how does the church not defend itself as an institution, right? And so I just challenge you, anytime you hear about the church, are people talking about Christ, the body of Christ? Are they talking about their denomination, their diocese, their self-interest, their nice building? I just challenge you to ask yourself what in the world they're talking about. Because the first things well-run are really great, but not essential, But people, in fact, are essential. And the gospel is, in the simplest sense, the touch of Christ. And that may become more and more difficult. Now, the very first thing we're going to read is, come on, you haven't shed blood yet. This is the story of shedding blood. right? The Jesus story is the story of shedding blood. From the very first day, I've told you, there's only one story in Scripture. It's a story of death and resurrection. And death involves the shedding of blood. So that's about the point where he invokes it. So, Here's where I want to get to with you, which is, I would love to see... Your discomfort is real, and you can embrace that, because discomfort keeps you sharp, right? Wounds tell you where the trouble is, what's important to you. Wounds tell you a variety of things, and in some sense, that's the sanctified use of your wounds. It's also the sanctified use of your sins, where the things that you did or the opportunities you missed... I mean, honest to God, part of the reason to keep a disciplined life is that if you don't keep a disciplined life, you'll never, you'll never contribute to Christ in the world what you should have contributed in all things. So, I mean, part of the reason is so that you can live without regret. Actually, this is how this book ends. I'm sort of pushing you ahead, but this is how... This is how he's going he's to sort of beg you to say, yeah, our world is coming apart at the seams too, I get that. Can you kind of move beyond the emotion of that and even beyond the pain of that? And can you see that sometimes that God can use that for your good? And can you embrace the things that are important so that you can be a good witness to the world? Which is, in fact, nothing else. than we. I mean, it's the same thing we talk about every year. This is all there is to talk about. This is the church, right? But the problem is we confuse the church with a lot of other things. And so just kind of let the the notion of pain and suffering and Discipline and rejection of your natural impulses and embrace of things you don't even understand sometimes with gritted teeth Where you just have to simply do it to understand it. There's no other way That's what it is to have faith Faith is to say and to see and to do as Jesus says and sees and does that's what it is It's not all the other stuff That's what it is. It's very very simple, okay? And if there's only one story, and that story is about death and resurrection, in fact, the death does come first. And then the resurrection comes. And if you found yourself, even for a lifetime, caught in the, this is where suffering and death is, part of being a Christian is to embrace that. And then you, you, know, um, you even see kind of remarkable stories from, you know, from the Mother Teresa of the world who, who keep faith in action all the way to somebody like saint Teresa the mystic who says everywhere i go i see devils and when i walk through they hide from me and i've never really understood why people are so upset when when the demons appear to them because the name of jesus is with me and i'm baptized and they shudder when they see me that's a remarkable way to talk about life and that's not the normal way that we talk about it not everybody is given that but it is interesting to think about that especially when we get to the salient point today where it says and your companion's the angels, right? So this notion that the angels go with you wherever you go, it's remarkable stuff. So what I'm trying to preserve you from is the bitterness of anger of, frankly, you, you're, you, you're all on what seems to be a losing team at the present moment. Well, then there's the Blackhawks. So, you know, uh, <laughs> if people can come back from the dead. You know, it's possible. You know, everything is an, a- and it's an allegory, all right? So, you know, you, you may feel like, and, you know, you may feel like you're on the losing team. Well, you know, there's some, there's some interest in that over the course of the Triduum, you know, Monday, Thursday, into Good Friday, into Easter morning, and they couldn't quite believe it. You know, somewhere you're caught, the entire world can be taught. In fact, I pitched a course at the seminary once that everything should be taught, everything, the introductory theology course, everything should be taught from the Triduum that you could say everything you needed to say about the church if you just taught from Monday, Thursday, to Easter morning. All right? That's about all you need to know. Well, you find your location in that story at some point, because after all, there's only one story. You find that location, and from there you go, and that's actually what's happening here. Okay, At least I'm going to argue that that's what's happening. So grab your Bibles. Um, I'm sort of at point eight on last. the last time we met. I'm at point eight, and I'll kind of zip through this because you know it but um, you know just this introductory bit from Hebrews 12 I'm not sure I'm going to read sort of every verse you know we've come out of this where we had the, all these great examples and um, I do actually want to just say well I want to talk just a little bit about suffering and then also about punishment especially for Christians and then move on from there but consider him who endured from sinners such hostility so consider Jesus You're shaped in Jesus' image. This is who you are. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you don't grow weary or faint-hearted. So, here it is. He suffers, you suffer. Don't be weary. Now, the trouble with that, of course, is is that weariness is your natural reaction, right? It's much like fear. Fear is a natural reaction. Weariness is a natural physical reaction, Fear is a nat- nat- natural, <laughs> emotional reaction. It just just happens to you, of course, and you can't control it. I mean, I'm sorry, you can't. It just appears, but you can, in fact, control it. I mean, this is this is the classic definition from classical literature of courage being managing fear. Everybody gets afraid. Courage is the ability to manage that fear, to master it, to act in spite of it. I mean, one of the you know, one of the great disappointments of losing the Western canon is that you lost, you lost the flowchart of life. <laughs> this happened to Lutherans, too, and they, they lost track of Thomas Aquinas about, about how, how, how your heart works and, and how, what your conscience is and how it betrays you uh, or convicts you. Uh, you know, when we lost those large flowcharts of how life worked, then you can't say this is where I am and a pastor can't say this is what you need to confess or this is what needs to be forgiven or this is forgiven, right? So, uh, you know, we kind of have to try to, and we've tried to reestablish that. I'm, I'm sort of my last great project before I die. In my own sense, I would love to uh, recover and it'll be, a, you know, probably a lone project. I'd like to recover, you know, the the... The great flow Chart of the heart and what it means. So we spent at Pastor's Conference this week, we spent Pastor Bukes and Pastor Nelson and I and the, some of the other pastors, but we spent a long time talking about what your conscience is, whether conscience actually exists in people. And here's the thing. What's interesting is we go to these and other pastors and sort of quote scripture to us. I'm like, I have a Bible too. Actually, I do have Romans. I actually have Romans in my body. Well, you couldn't tell it by looking at this one. But I do actually have it. You know. And I, I know what, about it being written on your heart. I know that. The, the question is, what's the implication of that? Or can it be so obscured by some people? So I put to you things like, what is conscience? What is it? Everybody talks about it all the time. Good conscience, bad conscience, guilty conscience. What is your conscience? This is something that we should talk about someday if we have a chance. Or what your conscience does to you? Does it accuse you or congratulate you? or just continue to convict you or try to destroy you? And when that happens, who's in control of your conscience? Those questions are alive, because that's what you live with every morning when you wake up, right? And then the next question would be, given the world that we live in, if people are being just undone by their conscience, like, is there still anything that's wrong? Is there still anything? If, even one thing, is there just one thing even that's wrong? that would suggest to me that people have a conscience and if there is if there's even just one thing that's wrong then how do you work from that one thing all the way back to Christ whose blood speaks well of us and forgives us so you know, all of that has been lost it's like it's like the last 2000 years didn't happen because we become stupid. We don't study it anymore. We gave up the western side of things. It didn't mean that the rest of the world didn't have anything to say. It's just that we sort of sold our birthright for a mess of porridge. And now we're all standing around going, what in the, what's happening to us? Well, actually both the ancients and Jesus knew what was happening. And that's both east and west. So there you go. So, so much of that is buried in here. The point is to try to dig that out and give you a practical way to live. So when he says something to you like, hey, remember Jesus endured hostility, and he endured that so you wouldn't grow faint-hearted. Why? Because in the image of Christ, yes, you know, they beat him till the skin comes off his bones, and then they crucify him, and then he survives. And so when you're weary, I mean, one of the things to remember is that story. In your struggle against sin, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, nor have we. Now, there are places. Sidebar, the interesting inability of our government to speak about genocide, either in the case of the Armenian Christians or in the case of the Syrian Christians. It is startling. I mean, you sort of have, how many bodies have to be stacked up? A million, in the case of the Armenians? A million bodies? Is that stacked not all enough, right? Or, whether you know it or not, more Lutherans died in the Soviet Union than Jews died in the Holocaust, right? The number is six, seven, eight million right? Starved to death by Stalin. You know, what does it take sort of to remember that these things happen to you? That these are people too, right? What does it take to remember that? You know, how is it that people can't talk about the Syrian when people are killed? When you're in a group and you're separated, Christian and non-Christian, and you're killed because you're Christian, that is the definition of genocide, right? And that people can't even see that anymore tells you this is the example of how things come apart, okay? So he says to these guys, hey, that's not you yet. It does happen in other places. It's not happened to you. It may happen to you. Here's the thing in this case, what I'm not doing is fear mongering. So, what I'm not trying to do to you is say, you should be really afraid and, you know, figure it out and, you know, buy guns and put them in your basement. I'm, just, I'm not giving any practical advice, okay? What I am saying to you is, um, you know, the world is basically light and darkness. That's the story of Scripture. It is death and resurrection. It is light and darkness. It is Christ and Satan. You can, put, you can tell the story any way you want, and there are going to be periods. There are going to be epochs, when thing, epochs where peop, things push back and forth. And at some point, there's going to be a big run at darkness, and then there's going to be a blast of light that will clean it all up. The problem is, if you don't live all the way to the end of that, it can be very difficult in the interim. And, of course, the only way that you can hold on is to say to yourself, the Eucharist is in me, I'm indestructible. And you know, if I live 70 or 80 years, that's a relatively short time when measured against eternity. You just have to say, you know, one of the great things about your life is, honest to God, that you die. One of the great things about your life is, it's over. And all the stuff that troubles you and punishes you and wearies you and tortures you, at some point, it's over. Now, here's the thing. We have all sorts of prayers, and we always talk about this, and we pray the great prayer where we pray and grant them a blessed death. That's a great Christian prayer. Like, I hope you don't have to go through it. You know, I think I told you I have a pastor friend whose um, grandfather lived about 90 years on the farm out in the middle of Nebraska. You know, good Christian guy, always gave to his church, was always there to support it. You know, sat down at his desk one night, wrote a letter to his wife, wrote a letter to his kids, wrote a letter to his church, and then went to sleep and died. And you're like, all right, well played, right? But it doesn't always happen that way. Okay, so you should just you should just be aware of that. And here, I mean, here it is. So you haven't struggled, you haven't shed blood yet. Now, here's the thing: Have you forgotten? Now, you should be so clever when you read scripture. So this should all come. So have you forgotten? So memory is a synonym for faith. So he's basically saying, have you forgotten? And you remember how this works, that memory breeds gratitude and confidence. So the lord And this is, this is the great problem. You know, this is like, you know, we'll never forget Prince, you know. Uh, you know, until somebody else dies, because we forgot David Bowie as soon as Prince died, right? <laughs> we will never forget Prince until Tom Petty dies. And then, you know, we'll forget Prince. I mean, we, this, this whole thing about people will live forever and, you know, they'll never be forgotten and blah, blah, blah. We can't remember things for 10 minutes, all right? So, I mean, here it is. So this is why you always have to, one of the marks of original sin is your memory is bad. You can't remember when you were jammed up and God brought you through. You can't remember when you were sick and you prayed that you got healed and you actually got healed. You just checked out and went home like nothing happened, right? You can't remember when your kids were sick and then it all turned out okay for them. You can't remember when your marriage was blowing up and you said, Jesus, and then it, then it, you can't remember, you can't keep that, because why? Because everything is howling at you the minute you wake up, the world is rushing at you, and you you know, you look at Facebook and you're all confused about the world, and then you know, you just can't ah! right? So memory, which goes with liturgy, which goes with rehearsal, which goes with telling the same stories over and over again, which goes with having history, which goes with having discipline, this is all a bundle that everybody always knew. We don't even know that the bundle exists anymore. So the great thing about reading Hebrews is, here's your bundle, okay? Have you remembered, right? Do you remember? Um, And you're struggling in sin, you haven't, you know. Do you remember? Have you forgotten? Now here it is, that you're a son. And now you have to take that as, you know, forget about the gender aspect of it, at least for this moment. And what you have to think about is, that's the nicest thing somebody could say to you. That's the right answer, buddy. I don't know. It must be, it must be somebody else, right? Do you remember? You're, if you're a son, remember you're an heir. You're inside. You're inside the house. You're not just a worker bee. You're somebody that gets listened to. You're somebody that has an inheritance. You just have to think. I mean, if if Nelson can stand on the pulpit and say you're all mothers, I can stand in a Bible study and say you're all sons. Okay? It just is what it is. I'm just, thank God he didn't preach that sermon on Mother's Day. Because that would have been. I was just, I mean, that's the first thing that went through my mind when he said that. I'm like, I thank you, Jesus, it is not Mother's Day. Because you cannot... Okay, so... See, see we've got to remember where the blessings that come to us. Have you forgotten the, the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Hey! Sometimes the Lord's going to discipline you. And this is right about where we left off last time. What's the difference between... You know, what's the difference between, you know, how do you know if it's from God or not? God won't destroy you. How do you know if God loves you or not? Because he might discipline you. Every child needs discipline. Even now we need discipline. We hire life coaches. We have spiritual advisors. You know, blah, 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 blah. All the places where we go for external people, you, hire, you know, you have to, you can't ride your bike alone. You have to have somebody, you know, soul cycle you so that you'll ride your bike, Right? Because why? Because we need somebody to impose discipline on us. Because they love us, and they want you to lose weight and your blood pressure to go down. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't lose courage when you're punished by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son He receives. And so I give you this, which I think is a marvelous quote um, from Madeleine Lingle. This is beautiful. Now here's the here's the weirdness of life. Um, Two times ago in new members class, there was just a guy sitting in who seemed to know a lot about this, and I gave this quote. And he, he actually said, you know, I was her editor when she published this. I'm like, really? So was, he said, we always had to kind of push her back to the notion of um, that there was still sin and that, you know, grace went with sin. But I, I'm like, here's the thing. If I have to choose my errors, for people to err on the side of love because that's not... We're going to get to 13.1, where he talks about the first word of 13.1 is Philadelphia, right? And one of the most interesting things is that people, I can remember this, it felt like the only the, it was the only Greek any of the teachers in my Lutheran school knew was the distinction between philia, eros, and agape. But they at least knew that. But you know, the first two, this agape, the selfness, the way God loves us, that God, can, God is different because he can love us utterly without self-interest, which we try to approach but never can get done. And then this notion of philia or Philadelphia, you know. Or in your vernacular, kiladelphia. But, you know, however you take it. It's even been on the East Coast long enough. Okay, so this notion of Philadelphia, where people, frankly, you can rely on them. I mean you said, just think about your friends, okay? Just think about the people you know. And think about how you sort them. I would bet that you sort your friends by whether they're reliable. Like in a pinch, do they come through? Like, are they there? I mean, that's so there's... And then, you know, what's left is Eros, which is, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, where, I talked to you about this, right? Where the, the new mo- mode is goes from sexual contact to commitment rather than commitment to sexual contact. We talked about this, right? We talked about this? Yeah, we did, right? Yes? No? We did. I can't remember what I said to you. I'm old, okay? So I just, I read, I read, I'll just say it to you again. I read, you know, partly what people, one of the things that we have trouble putting together now. So I take everything I've said and put it all together when it comes to sex. And it's really interesting because at the end of 13, you basically have sex being commended as a ritually clean thing. So interesting. So actually, one of the problems is the church hasn't done a good job talking about that. So, you know, we just had this category of binary choice, good and bad. So, you know... Sex is bad, 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 and then suddenly it's good, and you're like, what Every kid in the world is going, what? Which is why they don't talk to you about sex, because, you know, because they don't want to talk to you about it, because you don't understand it. So here's the thing. But the new paradigm in anybody who's, you know, Tinder age or below is um, sexual contact to commitment rather than commitment to sexual contact. It's such an interesting way, right? But it also tells you how shallow people are, because, frankly, sex isn't hard. Ask any teenager, right? I mean, it's not, it's not this, but to go from, this isn't, this, to go from, you know, sort of random, I hardly know your name, sex, to maybe this will work out for me, is exactly the opposite of what, you know, anybody probably in the room grew up with. But that's the paradigm now. I read kind of an interesting academic article on this about how people talk about this. It's very logical in one sense, but it is bereft of anything that looks like morality. Although, footnote, I still invoke my right at both the Republican and Democratic debate that when anybody says moral, the microphone immediately cuts to me and I get to say, and what do you mean by that? <laughs> I'm, I'm stunned. See, this is part of, this is part of the masquerade. That across the way, everybody is invoking moral without saying what it is. Even people who don't believe in God are invoking moral. And I'm thinking to myself, so moral is like what you think it is? And how is it moral that you get to enforce that on me? Hold on. So we don't in God trust anymore, and yet you still invoke something that you found somewhere, and you think that should be binding on me in terms of a range of things it's just so curious I just, it's like people can't think their way out of a paper bag anymore because they have no sense of either history or logic like things don't have to fit together for longer than 8 seconds right I don't, I don't get it, see like I still am musing how Prince could be a Jehovah's Witness I'm having such trouble it's, those things are hard for me to fit together I mean I love him, I can remember when Kirby and I saw Purple Rain at the drive-in this is where we, this is why we were at seminary This is where we learned the people in St. Louis, when they go to the drive-in, do you remember this? They get out and dance. It was like, this is great. In Iowa, we drive in because we're in our cars, we're driving in. And in St. Louis, we go to the drive-in to see Purple Rain, and it's like, everybody's dancing, my people. It was so great. We never knew we could get out of our cars. You see how impoverished. I am growing up in Iowa. This is the problem. It's having a narrow perspective on life, okay? so here we go just this uh, metalingo just there's only one purpose for punishment and you should think about this anytime you're asking yourself if God is punishing you the answer might be yes and the answer then the question might be why and the answer might be because it's good for you okay if God is punishing you then it's good for you here's the answer there's only one purpose for punishment and that is to teach a lesson touch this don't touch that right? Touch this, don't touch that. Touch good, don't touch evil. You become what you touch. You give it incarnation. Touch good, and things will, be, will go well for you. Touch evil, and your life you know, will turn into um, Night of the Living Dead. So, there's only one purpose for punishment, and that's to teach a lesson. There's only one lesson to be taught, and that is love. Now, you know, love as in selfless love, as is I care about you, but I care about you more than I care about me. Perfect love banishes Why? Because you know that it will have a good outcome. What you fear is the outcome. What you fear is the end. Right? My old thing about people don't fear change so much as what they really fear is loss. What you fear is that you'll be lost, that you'll lose something terribly important to you and you'll suffer with that forever. Perfect love banishes fear and when we're not afraid, I'm sorry, and when we are not afraid, we know that love that love which includes forgiveness. She writes better than I read. Um, yeah, I mean, so if you discipline your kids, or especially with your kids, I mean, they got to know that it's going to come to an end. It's going to appear to them. You know this, this. they've done great studies on stress, about the kind of stress that kills you. And they found it's not, the, it's not the amount of stress that people have. It's whether the stress has a terminus. So say you're writing a Ph.D., um, and you think they give you a stupid amount of work and, you know, this will kill you. Actually, it won't because you have particular points built in, your comprehensive exams, your dissertation um, defense, that it's over. The stress that kills people is the, ki- is the stress that has no end. When you can't see the end of it, that's the reason you fall over with a heart attack because you think the pain will never stop, Right? So, what's interesting about it is if you, when you punish, for example, your children, you have to upfront. Everybody has to know that there's a limit. Because if you don't, they will despair. And if they despair, they will flee or die. Those are the choices, okay? So, when God punishes you, there's always an end because the moment you say, I'm sorry, in that moment, forgiveness washes over you. When the lesson to be learned is not love, that is not punishment. Now, just put all your politics in perspective from all sides. That is revenge or retribution. You may critique it yourself. So when people come to power, when people come to power, is the interest in, do they really mean it when they say, what I wanted is best for you? Or do they really mean, I want what's best for me, which means... I'm going to let all my friends flourish, and I'm going to punish or destroy my enemies, right? And then you ask yourself, and it doesn't have to be a Christian nation, if you will. You can just go back and read history, and you can see that when things tipped over, it's, it's desperate people who revolt, right? And so when things tip over the edge, when people are hopeless, they either die or they go crazy, right? Probably the lesson of love is the most terrible punishment of all, an almost intolerable anguish. For it means that the sinner has to realize what has been done, has to be truly sorry, to repent, to turn to God. And most of us are too filled with outrage at rape or murder to want the sinner to repent. I mean, I I read a post by somebody I know who said, what I learned at church this morning is that God loves Hitler as much as he loves me and then said something very honestly, that's very difficult for me. That's a very brave kind of post. We want the sinner to feel terrible, but not to turn to God. This is when you think about people who you don't really like, in fact, people that you hate. I mean, this is, this is, the, this is the borderline, friends, that we don't want them to turn to God, that we can't be happy with God's mercy for them, that, that God's mercy might even in their lives be more tangible or palpable than it is in our own lives. We want the sinner to feel terrible, but not to turn to God and be made whole and be forgiven. And so we show that we do not know the meaning of forgiveness any more than Jonah did in his vindictive outrage at the people of Nineveh. Right back to the top, there's only one purpose for punishment, and that's to teach a lesson, and there is only one lesson to be taught, and that is love. That is the message of Christ. Right? while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, which means why when we hated him, he still loved us, right? Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, okay? And sometimes that's going to be extraordinarily painful. But, verse 8, if you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children, and you're not heirs. So, you know, you just decide what you want to be. You can either be part of the family or you cannot be part of the family with all that that means in the ancient world. Part of what you have to understand in the ancient world is the notion of both family and hospitality and order and authority and hierarchy, all of those things working together, right? So, you know, there's a, there's a king somewhere who's in charge and there's, you know, a queen. Go read Esther if you want to know what that's about. And, and so then there are children and there are... Um, you know, so there, you know, there there are advisors, and, and there are, there are people who are part of the royal class, and then there's sort of everybody else kind of trickles down, and you know what? If you don't want to play this way, you soon find yourself outside outside the gate. You're not part of the family anymore. This is how the family works. You've said this. I'm sure you've said this to your to your family. This is how our family works. Come on, tell me that you said this right. I don't care what anybody else does. They're not us, right? You've said this, right? If you haven't said it, you should say it. You should go home and say it today like six times. Just You can say it to your wife and or your husband. It's so effective. <laughs> Just give it a try and report back, okay? But here's the thing, you know. There, there, we've got rules in this house, right? you said this in another. Because I'm your mother, that's why. These are all riffs on the same thing. Well, here it is right here in the Bible. You know, if you're clever enough to pull it out and use it against somebody who you want to control. So, I mean, it's all yours. If you're left without discipline, in which we've all participated, then you're illegitimate, you're not besides this. We have earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them, I hope. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of the Spirits and live? Right, and so it's all toward being forgiven, toward mercy, toward love, toward living. For they disciplined us for a short time. There you go, the terminus. Boop. It has an end point. You're only grounded till next summer at this time. <laughs> Someday I'll tell you about swearing in front of my mother and being grounded for a whole summer, but I really we'd have I don't know you well enough. Uh, for they disciplined us for a short time at their pleasure, but he disciplines us, and here you go, for our good. And now, besides athletics, are there any other realms, really, where people talk about that? Disciplines us for our good. That, that is not common talk. And if you think it is common, or even in your workplace if it's common, I would argue that there's an ulterior motive that looks like an S with two lines through it, right? But just, you know... They discipline us for a short time at their pleasure, but he disciplines us for our good. There it is, that we may share his... Holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Later it yields, and there you go, this is going to be important as we go on, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Now here's the thing, in just a little bit, we've got to go, but you can look around at this. In a little bit, actually it's, it might just be on the next page or maybe the next page. Or the next page. Man, why aren't we going any Faster. Uh, if you go like six pages ahead, <laughs> at the top of the point, you get this thing where it says, literally, any root of bitterness that's popping up causes trouble. That's the opposite. That's like, uh, oh, it's just, it's just two verses down. It took me four pages to get there. Just go down to verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. This is just, this is, all this is is the first thing we say to every vicar. We're going to have a new vicar. Next Tuesday, what's the first thing we're going to say to him, Vic? What's the very... Oh, first the microphone. That's the first thing we say to every vicar. You don't... Get trouble, you stay out of trouble. Don't worry. You're going to like your next vicarage better. No, he's been great. We don't have much time left with him. We, I, I hear through the grapevine. We won't know, of course, until next week. I hear through the grapevine. We've got a vicar schedule, which is great because I just want to say to you, this is why, for you who stayed with it in your woe. You remember there was one, they had such trouble placing vicars one time that we took two vicars, right? They've remembered us in the old days. There were 25 churches that wanted vicars that didn't get them this year, so we're glad to have one. Anyway, the point of this is, these are two sides of the same coin. You've got to root things up. If you don't root up bitterness... If you don't pull it out by the roots, you know it's like anything else. If you don't pull it out, it grows, it flourishes, and it takes over. All right, this, is why it's so, this is why the whole talk about discipline and love and doing better and what's best, all of these things, that they, they all bundle together. There's just one, I mean, I haven't said one thing. I've said one thing. I haven't said more than one thing this morning. I mean, for 45 minutes, it's just one thing. There's just one thing. You just have to say it in a bunch of different ways, and you see it every place you go. This is all there is. There's nothing else. There's one story, there's death, there's life. Choose life. It's that simple. And the church is the place that trains you how to do that, how to push away what will kill you, how to embrace the things that will save you, how to not touch evil, how to touch holy. And if you touch holy, you will be different than everybody else in the entire world. Right? Lest themselves, human beings will kill each other. We are a ruined race. And that's as easy as original sin we got to go. I don't know. We'll do something next week. It'll look like this, okay? Here we go. Um, Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thanks. See ya.